Hello and welcome to 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Cherry. And this week we're taking a look at the 1973 George Roy Hill con artist comedy drama The Sting. Best Picture winner, a classic of 70s cinema. And to discuss this episode, I thought I'd invite a very, very special guest, my dad. Hi, dad. How are you doing? How are you? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. This was the only way that we could do family conversations. Um, no, I, I decided to ask Dad for reasons that I'm now desperately worried may not actually reflect reality. So the, the reason that I asked Dad is because when we settled on doing The Sting, um, I have memories of The Sting that I associate with Dad in particular. Because I remember when I was a kid, when I was about 12, I went through the phase that, you know, many 12-year-old boys go through where they're like, hey... I want to watch a lot of 70s cinema. I mean, I imagine you went through that as well, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had a weird one where I wanted to watch, like, a lot of uh, black and white movies. I, I think I wanted to be a playwright. So I, w- I was, like, I was um, at, at, like, eight years old for some reason. I, I, I was watching, I think my, my mother had a copy of Laurence Olivier's um, Hamlet. And I, 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 was, I, I was watching that, I think, over and over, because there weren't that many things to watch in the house. Um, and um, I think some silent movies as well. So I had a weird kind a of, similar uh, sort of experience. But I, I'm, not, I'm not the film buff that you are. But um, anyway, so like I decided I was going to watch these 70s films, The Godfather, Chinatown, stuff like that. And while I was going through that, that phase, I think it coincided with about the time that my mum went to hospital for my little sister be, to be born. And I have a specific memory of like talking about these films with my dad and my dad asking, do you have The Sting? We talk about classic 70s cinema. Do you have The Sting? Can we watch The Sting together? And I actually have this memory of sitting down and watching The Sting with you as a 12-year-old kid. Now, telling this story live on air... I am desperately, desperately worried that Dad is sitting there going, I have no recollection of this story whatsoever. <laughs> now, the, the thing is, it's, it's a very good movie. It's, it's timeless. Um, I remember when, when I seen it, I went into uh, Dublin to have a look at it in Collins Street. I think it was a Savoy at the time. Which would have been just one screen at the time. One the big massive, screen, sort of yeah, one massive of screen and many, many people in there watching it, you know. And I suppose at the time, going to the cinema was was it was sort of normal things that you did it's not like today when it's sort of special at times you know and but i was really taken by this thing um like the plot was different than most of the other movies that we went to see at the time and the twists and turns in it was were, were excellent and you came out of it like unlike going say to a dirty harry movie or a james bond movie whatever it was well that was great now what's the next movie I'm going to look at you came out thinking well hold on a minute now how did this happen and how did that happen and mm. I suppose to me that was really great about it, but I suppose now tonight now looking at it, and I haven't seen it for a long, long time. Looking at tonight now, it's almost as if it's timeless. You know, I enjoyed it tonight uh, almost as much as I enjoyed it the first time. The first time was different because I didn't know the plot, didn't know yeah. the subplots, and as such, there was that amount of 
belief in it the intention yeah. in it now you know that there's a twist in it you know the twist is going to come up but but it is it's a fa fascinating film and I think it's one of the best that I've ever seen I'm really, really glad to hear you say that because I was very worried that I'd invite you here and it turned out my memory was false and it'd be Dad's like, no, this thing is grand. It's fine. It's perfectly <laughs> adequate. I don't really have strong feelings about it one way or the other. Well, it is grand. It is adequate. <laughs> it's all of that and more. all of that and more. It's a lovely, it's a beautiful film. It's, it's a timeless. So you would have seen this back when it was released around 73, 74. Yeah, around that time. I don't know exactly when. Um, there's a few other movies around that time, I remember. Um, I don't know whether they were at the same time. But things like The Exorcist and uh, those Dirty Harry was around. And of course, then you had the James Bond. And, you know, the James Bond and the Dirty Harry one was shoot anything that lives and anything that still yeah. lives, shoot them again. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all great action things. You know, yeah. But this thing was different. Uh, and the other film at the time, I suppose, was uh, that, that, that I also remember was Papillon. But I don't think Papillon uh, has kept its has value, aged, has as, aged well. as well as this. Uh, I remember watching it and I found Papillon very, very slow. Whereas tonight now... Well, it's it, maybe not as fast as some modern films. To me, it was it was very very entertaining and kept at a great pace. Well, Papillon is very it, it, it's a slow movie, but it's also a kind of a movie that you don't want to be in. For very long. <laughs> it's a kind of dirty, sticky movie. <laughs> like uh, um, compared to this, this is is, is so kind of um, whimsical uh, in yeah, a way. Yeah, and kind of classy, and it's a. It's it's an old movie in the sense that it's a 70s movie, but it's nostalgic then, kind of like, because it's looking back to the 30s. At the 30s. Like, a lot of the 70s movies would have done that. Like, The Godfather yeah. is set during the 30s, for example. We did Paper Moon uh, yeah. quite recently, which is another con artist movie made in the 70s, set in the 30s. I suppose a bit later, uh, Once Upon a Time in America as well. Yeah, that would have been like a decade later. But again, yeah. Leone would have started doing that in the 70s. Yeah, well, he certainly, this was when he was meant to make it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, the, the thing is that it's, it's kind of interesting, though, because while a lot of those, like, a lot of those movies, and particularly like Chinatown as well, I think is also set in the 30s and 40s. Uh, but you have like, those movies tend to be a bit rougher. Like The Godfather is quite violent and quite graphic and quite like forceful at times. It deals with things like domestic abuse. It's got very graphic shootings, the murder of women and children and that sort of stuff. You have things like, for example, even Paper Moon that we, that we watch sort of deals with more like the mundane realities of trying to live through the 30s. This is an interesting film because it's, it's been described, Leonard Moulton, um, who I know Andrew's a big fan of, he's a film critic, he said that it's a very rare movie that is for everybody, but The Sting is that movie. Uh, Roger Ebert, who was writing at the time, who was very, like, he was a bit more guarded about New Hollywood and a bit more guarded about those 70s movies that we discussed than a lot of other critics. And he was saying that this is one for everybody. This is one for the entire family. And he found that very refreshing in an age where, like, in the 70s, where things were getting more violent. He pointed to Dirt, Dirty Harry and James Bond, for example. But, like, the idea that, and you know, there are maybe little bits of violence in this film, but there's a lot less than when you look at some of the films that are being released around it, you know, in terms of like Bonnie and Clyde and stuff like that, or even as you point out, the sticky, gritty world of Papillon, which is not a place you want to go. This feels like there is violence here. People do die, but it does feel more old fashioned, more nostalgic in a sense. Yeah. Just, just one thing I suppose that, 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 that uh, just thinking about is I've heard it now being described as a comedy, but certainly back when I watched it, I wouldn't have described it as, as a as a comedy, you know. It it, it said it, it was a film that uh, wasn't violent. It was interesting, very interesting to watch. It kept your mind taking over what was going on. And I, uh, yeah, I'm a bit surprised now that it's called a comedy. It certainly wouldn't at that time been called a con 
comedy. That, that's it as well. I'm surprised as well because it's it's like it does have funny bits in it, but it's not a riotous end to end sort of stuff. Even if you look at stuff from the 70s that was being released around the same time, say Monty Python, for example. I mean, like, it's only as funny as kind of Butch and... Butch uh, Cassidy and Butch Sundance. Cassie and Sundance. Which is from the same combination, the same, I obviously, Newman and... some people would think of that as... A, 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 it certainly has a similar feel to this movie. I know it is like Newman and... Uh, Redford and Hill, the director, as well. Yeah. Like, it, it's fun. Yeah. And it's it's funny in in parts, but yeah, I, I don't I don't I don't kind of see I I don't see it as a comedy. Well, one of the interesting things is that like one of the reasons Newman did this film, um, and he brought on I believe he brought on Hill and he brought on Redford, was one of the reasons he did this film was because he was told that he couldn't do a comedy, and he was like, well, I'll show them. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly light. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's 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 perhaps easier to call it a comedy than a drama. Than, scene. Yeah, or, or like a thriller, uh, yeah. or a crime movie. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it it perhaps gives you a better idea of the tone. Yeah. Maybe if you're if if you're saying it's a it's it's a comedy, maybe it gives you a better idea what to expect. But I yeah, it's not it's not quite a comedy either. Like, no. no, it's more it's more. I suppose it's a bit like a whodunit, except they haven't <laughs> done it yet. A whodunit. <laughs> how done it? How did they do yeah. it? A caper. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, it was very interesting. How you know you feel that you have you're on the inside track what's going on all the time and then there's a you know there's a twist at the end of it that that that, that, that that's really good now and, and i know now well let's not get too specific i won't get too specific but i must say that did when i watched it the first time around did that, it catch you that really caught me yeah really yeah. caught me you know i i didn't see that coming um and and yet then when you look back well you say yeah that 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 that, 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 that was there you know yeah mm. um and when you watch the film there's there's little I suppose little hints that, 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 that it's not what it seems, but you wouldn't spot that first time around. No, Dar- Darren is surprised because Darren, um, like Jay that we've had on the podcast, <laughs> has seen too many movies. So one of the joys of movies is being surprised by by movies. And because Darren has seen too many movies, it, it's, no longer it's, surprised. Yeah, it's it's slightly harder to surprise Darren, who wants. Um, uh, he has his expectations. He wants them subverted, and then for those subverted expectations to be to, subverted again. Yeah, I want a double subversion here. It is actually worth noting, actually, just in noted ter- Nolan fan. Noted, yeah, of course, a Nolan fan. Doubling back, tripling over, bending round, tying in. Uh, but it's worth noting, by the way, just in terms of the film's production history and stuff like that. Um, it's based on Dave, there's this writer David Morier who was basically a sort of a social linguist is how he described himself and he would write these books where he would go into subcultures and he'd basically write about their slang so things like say Cockney rhyming slang for example but what he did was he went into the criminal classes in the 1930s and he wrote this book which is called The Big Con and in fact actually you'll note that in the movie themselves they used The Big Con mm-hmm. as, as a sort of a, fa- a phrase repeatedly um, and it basically was a glossary of how criminals thought and how criminals sort of worked and stuff. Um, and in fact, like, w- Walter Winchell would actually sue uh, Maurier over the use of Winchell as slang for Mark. Because apparently Walter Winchell was like, I'm no Mark. Um, and so <laughs> launched a massive lawsuit, um, but didn't win, unfortunately. Uh, but the book actually inspired, or allegedly inspired The Sting, when The Sting became the biggest box office hit of the year and a Best Picture winner, uh, Maurier, who was at that point blind and so couldn't actually see the film, one of his friends encouraged him to sue. He settled out of court for $600,000 per the Los Angeles Times. 
And then you lose it on a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately after, no. Um, he, I think, actually, he um, he had a very sad life afterwards, Maria, because he passed away, I think, less than a decade afterwards from suicide. Oh. Um, and he actually destroyed a lot of his own notes because he was worried that his estate or his lawyers would try and sell them in order to claim money back. So he actually destroyed his own records and stuff like that to prevent them from being like sold after his death, which is a very sad story. Mm. Uh, anyway, sorry, so that's a bit of an upper. Um, but interesting. Wow, Darren. I know, and I just bring cheer. And actually, before this movie, before the plot of this movie, which I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> <laughs> the Wire, which is the, um, the scam that they run in the film, and we won't get specific about it, but this is apparently it's an old con. And it's a con that is still in use today. Was, Although, yeah, it was it was it was about ten years out of fashion <laughs> when they in when the movie was set in nineteen thirty. Um, and the thing is that, like, apparently, when they made this movie, Orson Welles had already done a radio play, "The Many Lives of of Harry Lyme," which is horseplay. It's an episode that was broadcast in nineteen fifty one. Well, included in the show notes, but where which is basically sort of a trial run of this. It takes the listener through how this sort of con at the heart of the film works. So it's kind of interesting. How much of the film is old-timey? Uh, the director, Hill, would famously make a point to shoot his scenes in, in a way that evoked, like, 30 cinema. So, like, you'll notice that nobody is ever on the streets in this film. Yeah. Nobody but named characters are ever on the streets. Like, there's lots of scenes of people in bars and pubs, but whenever, like, Robert Redford goes outside, it's just him and a goon. Or it's just him and the two people trying to kill him. Or it's just, you know, it's that, it's that sort of thing. And what happened was Hill looked at a whole bunch of 30s films. And he noticed that in 30s films, there were very rarely crowd scenes set outside or on the standing sets. So that's why, for example, this film has very few external crowd scenes. You know, I enjoyed it with the, with the sparseness of some of the outside scenes. You can notice the, the, the beautiful kind of Mac painting. The, oh, that's the, the background that the they art, have yeah. in, in 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 the background, which is. I, th- I think it, yeah, it's a, it's a shame that they that they don't uh, do it anymore in movies. Because if you're doing a movie now, you maybe have like the facade kind of dressed up to look like um, it's in the whatever series it is, and then everything else is kind of digitally kind it's of CGI um, added afterwards, and it kind of um, feels uncanny. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, there, there is, there, there, yeah, it has that kind of, kind of effect on you. But there, there, even, even though you're watching a movie and you can see maybe that, 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 that part of it has, has, has literally been painted on. Yeah. Um, it, it, I don't think it takes, takes me out of it. It makes me kind of like feel like, like you almost ad- admire the, the artistry of it. Well, that's a, it's a heightened reality. I yeah, think, is it? Like exactly. A, yeah, because, and I don't think this, like, this movie feels very kind of set. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't feel necessarily like the real world, or at least it, it doesn't. Maybe it's because we're watching from the distance of, like, 2019. I kind of like that. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. Like, I like that sort of stage quality to it. But the, I think the, if you look at the way it was shot, uh, and, the, and as you said, the, the background to the whole lot of it, it doesn't take you away from what's happening. No. It actually adds to it, and the same with the music, the same with the style of the music. It fits in well with what's going on, so it's it's very well coordinated, you know. And I suppose the fact that it doesn't annoy you when you're watching what's going yeah. on, it actually supports what's going on. I think that's another reason why this is sort of a. It's very very easy to watch. It's very nice to watch, and I think it's an, an a really good film. Um, just in terms of actually, just in terms of it being nice to watch, it's one of the rare movies that has been on the IMDb's list of the top 250 movies ever made. Uh, since the list's inception. Um, it has never dropped off. It's currently, it's only at 100. Um, so it's holding pretty high. It's actually higher 
than Butch Cassidy, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which is kind of a film it's that... maybe a surprise to some people, I'd imagine, because the, the Butch, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is certainly the, probably the more memorable uh, Red for people. Man. Or is it? Well, that's the thing. I mean, well, uh, Dad, what do, you, what do you think, actually? Would you ra- how would you rank this compared to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I think the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a much lighter movie um, and wouldn't have been as thoughtful as this. I think that when you go into this and look at this, I think every time you watch it, there's something extra that you see in it. It's so well put together. Um, I don't think Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good film, nice film and that, but it doesn't have all those uh, nuances and, and bits in it that, that's in this. I think that every time you watch this, like you want to watch it from the beginning to the end. You can't just come in, in the middle of this. Whereas you can come in, in the middle of Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And enjoy that raindrops keep falling on my yeah. head sequence. And, 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 and do that. You know, like, um, and, and, and this one didn't really have to depend on the sort of the, the magnetism between the two main actors. Yeah. There was more in this. You know, like I think that all of the players in this played a, played a very, very good parts and believable parts in it. Even the minor parts. And that's how well produced this is. So, so if you look at incredible this, cast, yeah, yeah. Compare this now to the Sundance Kid, which is really two main actors that carries that through. Yeah. There's more in this than that. The plot is much more, I suppose, detailed. Uh, there's much more in it. Yeah. I think that the style of it, it's a much more stylish um, film than, say, I would say, Butch Cassidy and Sundance. And that's just my opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, if I wanted to sit down in the crisps and not think about a movie I'd play uh, you know Butch Cassidy Sundance Kid but I wanted a movie that I wanted to be awake through it and, and I really want to enjoy even the little bits of it this is the movie that I'd, I'd pick um, and it's worth noting actually that you're, you're entirely right there because I mean I, I noticed watching this time how little time Redford and Newman spent together they get a couple of scenes together but mostly they're off playing their own angles and interacting mm. with different characters in a way that prevents them from interacting with one another and even when they are connected you maybe don't even don't realize the extent to which it yeah. does feel like I mean you get a sense maybe as an audience that there that, that, that there they might be more aware of of of, of each other um than than is shown yeah um in 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 the scenes but yeah it, 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 generally speaking yeah it seems like they're 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 doing their own thing it's kind of funny to me because i've always assumed that like redford and newman were this inseparable sort of like movie making duo they only made two films together that that kind of surprised me like i mean i remember discovering that as a teenager because i'd always assumed that the pair of them you know you <laughs> You imagine that back in the Hollywood in the seventies, there were these kind of like packs of actors in their thirties and forties, just hanging out. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, like the new Hollywood frat pack sort of thing. (laughs) Except they were like Paul Newman and Robert Redford, so they were like socially conscious and stuff. Um, Like I mean, like this, this is how how old were they in this movie? The Fact Machine. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. And we're back from the fact machine. So yes, so Paul Newman was approaching 50 and Robert Redford was in his late 30s at this point when these films were made. Which is kind of funny when everybody keeps talking about Hooker as if he's a kid. Um, And I know that Robert Redford (laughs) has that sort of boyish charm to him. But there's a couple of those close-ups where you're like, I feel like he probably has enough experience to keep him going. It's kind of weird though, because I mean... It's it's the funny thing about acting is that like an awful lot of the time by... by, by the time an actor kind of uh, makes it, himself. and then like they're like big enough that you want to put them in lots of movies, they might be in their 
thirties or forties or like like how old is Tom Cruise? Tom Cruise at this point is only sixty, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. He's he's over fifty anyway. Yeah, yeah certainly. But yeah, that that are like um, and then um, they're they they become the really kind of bankable people, and yeah. you want to kind of try and write them into young roles <laughs> for as long as you can to to, to get all the young people to go to the cinema and watch these. Invest um, in these kids. Watch these people in their fifties playing thirty-something-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. Was it like Race Three? We were talking about earlier in the year, where fifty-two-year-old Salmon Khan was like ten years ago when I was twenty-five. <laughs> um, but that sort of thing. I had the same when, um, uh, with 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 the with the with the other Khan, um, the, Amir Khan, where he's playing Amir, a student Amir at, Khan, at the yeah. age of fifty. But I mean, it's kind of interesting because Redford and Newman kind of came together. Apparently they lived together in Connecticut or they lived near enough to one another when they were in Connecticut. And that's when they sort of forged the, the friendship that they had around one another. Interesting enough, like apparently Newman coming into this film, he was apparently in a bit of a bind because uh, he was, Newman was one of the biggest actors of his generation. He was one of the big, and he was one of the first uh, actors to really deal with the divide between being a celebrity and being an actor. Whereas he talked a lot about how he felt typecast when he was acting and stuff like that. And how he felt like he was being constantly hem- hedged in and stuff. But he also had to deal with fans. Like he would, when he would stay at hotels, he'd have women stalking him who'd like show up randomly at his room. He had to wear beards and sunglasses when he was outside in order to, uh, to disguise himself. He talks about like one time when he was at a urinal some guy walks up to him with a pen and piece of paper asking for an autograph. He's like, well, what's the etiquette here? Do I wash my hands first? What, what, what happens? Um, and he's, he's, Paul, um, were you ever tempted by any of those um, uh, young women stalking you? It's his uh, famous line about um, why would I uh, go out for a burger when I've got prime rib at home? Yeah, but well, he had a very it, happy marriage. Yeah, his his wife hated that line. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, if it's, and you wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he, he could have been worse. He could have said, why go out for a burger when I've got a burger at home? <laughs> <laughs> a perfectly serviceable burger. Um, but yeah, so Newman was one of those sort of level of celebrities. But in 1969, the same year that he did Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, he was trying to assert control of his image and he had launched, I think it's called uh, Artists, uh, Artists First was the name of the production company that he launched. He launched it with a variety of celebrities, including people like... Um, what's Barbara Streisand and Dustin Hoffman. And the idea was that like these actors who cared about like making good movies, they'd produce movies, push them through. They'd make the movies that they wanted to make and they trust that they do well enough at the box office. And they each undertook to do like five films to help get the studio off the ground. Newman apparently was the only person who did all five and he suffered horribly for it. Not one of them was financially successful. So apparently when he arrived, when he got offered the script for the sting or when he read the script for the sting, like he was desperately in need of a box office hit. Yeah, um, yeah. I identify with with Paul Newman at all. <laughs> <laughs> like agreed to kind of collaborate with something and then doing all of the hard work. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry, it was first artist was the name, but yeah, so it was like uh, Pocket Money, The Life and Times of Judge Ray Bean, The Judge, Drowning. The Life book. and Times of Judge Ray Bean is great. Yeah, but it, it wasn't it's, financially successful. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a it's certainly a cult hit. Yeah, it was directed by John Huston, I believe, as well. Yeah, yeah. and people will remember the um, the uh, bar in um, in Dublin, kind of behind where the porterhouse now is. I think um, 
it was called um it was called Lily's Bordello for a while and now Lily's Bordello is closed down. I think before that it was called Judge Roy Bean. Was it? I think so. Okay. Um I I, I, I Keep in mind Lily's Bordello is a very upper class yeah. establishment in No, Dublin. no, no, but th- this was this was this was before um before Lily's, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, or it, 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 it was certainly around that um that area. Or it may have been where um, Porterhouse is now on uh, on I think National Street. George Bean became the Porterhouse. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, the the. Um, I mean, the rich legacy of Newman's first artist sort of lives on to this day. Yeah, and it, it, like lines from that movie that are very well known um, as well, like um, um, that get that get used kind of in the in the in the in the public conversations. Kind of conversations. Like none none as pure as a reformed tour. Um, is 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 I'm is, is, not, is, is you one can, of the listeners can't see Dad's face at the moment, but I'm, I'm Dad's. It's, let's dad's, go back. Let's go back to talk about progress. <laughs> and, dad's and reacting to what we're thinking. But interestingly enough, apparently Redford wanted to do a third collaboration with Newman before Newman passed away. They wanted to do a walk in the woods together, uh, but Newman basically um, Newman passed away before that could happen. Well, he was too ill um, to take the role at the time, and then he passed away was released recently with Nolte in the uh, in the role that was originally written for Paul Newman there. Um, I do like that again Paul Newman he's a he's a very funny very <clears throat> famous sort of humorist. Um, he's he wrote this he wrote a book called Shameless Exploitation in Pursuit of the Common Good which is about like his charity work and about how he did all these terrible terrible celebrity things in order to pay for charity work and his the biography that he wrote of himself is great uh, which is Paul Newman, known as Old Paul L to both friends and enemies. The L stands for Leonard or Lunkhead. He answers to both. He's probably best known for his spectacularly successful food conglomerate. In addition to giving the profits of charity, he also rang Frank Sinatra out of the spaghetti sauce business. On the downside, the spaghetti sauce business is outgrossing his films. He did graduate from Kenyon College, Magnum Cum Laude, and the process begat a laundry business, which was the only student-run enterprise on Main Street. Yale University later awarded him an honorary doctorate of humane letters for unknown reasons. He has won four sports car club of American national championships and is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the oldest driver at the age of 70 to win a professionally sanctioned race. He's married to the best actress on the planet, was number 19 on Richard Nixon's enemies list, and purely by accident has 51 films and four Broadway plays to his credit. He is generally considered by professionals to be the worst fisherman on the East Coast. I'm surprised he's got time to make movies after all. <laughs> after all, that's incredible. Up. Like the the uh, the the road racing thing sounds like a made up credit, but people who know Newman. about uh, Newman know that he has like it's like well yeah Newman 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 has many passions in life. Of course, he's an actor. He's he's also an enormous philanthropist. But what of the other loves of his life? Yes, of course, racing. <laughs> Race car time. Well, there's a famous story where like Redford would talk about how much they would mess with each other. And he'd always try and get Redford to come down to like the racetrack with him and to race a Porsche. Because apparently there was nothing in life like racing a Porsche. And Redford would be like, would you ever just shut up about it? I mean, I, I've heard about like, I heard about the crash you got into and that was just a disaster waiting to happen. So apparently one stage Redford had the, um, had the remains of a Porsche that Newman totaled shipped to Newman's house as a birthday gift. Newman had those remains of a Porsche compacted and shipped back to Redford for Redford's 50th birthday. Redford opened the package, saw that was there, took him down to a local art gallery, had them make a sculpture out of it and had it installed in Newman's lawn without his permission. Um, And apparently so on and so forth between the two guys for the uh, back and forth for the rest of their lives. 
They must have made a bit of money out of movies then if they could afford to do all of that. <laughs> yeah. It seems like an overly elaborate use of a Porsche, if we're being honest. But yeah, we'll, we'll, let's, let's move on then and talk about the film in a bit more depth. But first of all, the first, the three questions that we ask when we're dealing with a film. Dad, do you think that The Sting belongs on a list of the top 250 movies ever made? Yeah, I think, looking back, yeah. I, I think it's a great movie, um, as I said before. I'm just trying to remember other movies that were around at the same time, and I can't remember too many of them. So it really stuck out. And the fact that I, I still go back to it today, to me, indicates that it's something that I really enjoyed. Yes, I think it is is, is well worth to, to be in the top uh, number of movies, yes. And Andrew, yourself? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, it, and, 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 um, um, and as, as Jerry has said, it's, 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 it's very intelligent um, as well. It really gets you thinking. Um, it, it, it's... It, um, it definitely belongs on the list for me, yeah. Cool. And Dad, uh, would it be on your own list? If you had your own list of your favourite movies of all time, would this be high up there? Well, you know it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is slightly a rigged question here. It in is this really case. I'd, be, I'd be very surprised if you turned around and said, actually, on second thought, no, no, it would not. Now, there's um, only a few movies that, 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 that I can remember going to see at this at my age. You know, my memory's uh, fastly <laughs> obliterating. <laughs> but, you know, like Star Wars was another one, you know, and I remember going to see that, The, the Ambassador, and that really left a mark uh, on me when I seen the first one. Uh, and, and the same with Sting, you know. Uh, I, it has, it's, it's got qualities that I like to see in it. That you don't, you're not just sitting down there in a vacant mind sort of way. Just it's having it fed to you. Fed to you. It, 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 it is really entertaining. And I said, every time I watch it now, I get something more from it. Because, you know, like, I know the ending now and I can see the build-up to it better than I could when I didn't know it at the, at the, at the start. At the start. And, and the twists then, when I look at the twists as well, you know, they're really well played. The story's very well told. Like, it doesn't give too much away, but it gives enough away that you think you're involved in it. Uh, but but not too much that you don't miss the the plot, you know. Like so, yeah, it's a very well written and a, a, a film. And as I said earlier on, the the the, the sort of the background to it, the 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 sort of the the props, the color, the music, everything, everything supports what's going on in front of you. And it it isn't Newman and it isn't Redford carrying this. It carries yeah. itself. Now, and and it was a great platform for both of them. And Andrew, what about yourself? Absolutely, and and. Um, you make a good point there because it 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 it, it isn't this isn't like um, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid where where it's a Newman uh, Redford, Redford joint. Yeah. There's so many um, other even performances in this. Aside from all the other elements of the movie, um, you 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 have our our um, one of our favorites, Robert Shaw. That we, when 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 we covered Jaws, I'll we, I'll find your poker shark for fifty, <laughs> and I'll kill him for half a million. Does he have the same voice in every movie? Well, he has he has an Irish accent here, but we'll yeah, suspect we're going to talk about that. You follow me? <laughs> do you follow? Um, you do follow. you follow? Is a very uh, <laughs> it's, it's always a loaded question in this film. I think so fantastically uh, menacing and just incredible. Um, uh, performance throughout by Shaw but you've also got kind of other people who you've seen from all sorts of things um, Ray Walston from My Favourite Martian is in there I think yeah yeah then you, you, you probably as a as a Star Trek fan would know him from Voyager Luffy. as well yeah. and, and Next Generation yes yeah. um, and um, there's uh, Charles Durning 
who's always the um, kind of uh, <laughs> heavy cop. Yeah, yeah. Not the very good cop. No, he's, he's, no. He's, uh, and, and we people don't mean know like, him from Dog Day Afternoon is probably the biggest... Uh, uh, Charles Durden yeah. role. But I mean, in the 70s, he had a sort of a cottage industry in this sort of thing as well. Absolutely. Um, but it, even pe- people that you'd kind of recognise, like... Um, I'm fairly sure I've seen a lot of the henchmen around, yeah, for example. Yeah, one of and them they was Charles D. Cobb. And I, th- uh, um, I think was his name. And I, I, I looked it up because I'm like com- convinced that, you I've, know that I've seen him in all sorts of things. Um, and I think I have it here. One second. He was... How did I not have this open? <laughs> um, Live radio. <laughs> um, yeah, he's also in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So people will, uh, would, uh, would, have, um, would have seen him uh, 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 from that. But he's this very memorable... Like, he's still in movies now. So we've probably been seeing him in... Like, popping up in shows. And bits and pieces yeah, since, all, actually. All, all the time. So yeah, they, they they and they all they all do do such a fantastic job. Yeah. Like they're the um, it's just top to bottom. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it would be it would be on my two fifty. It was a real joy. And dad, then finally the final question before we jump in, and I think again this is purely a pro forma thing because I'm going to be very surprised if you throw me for a loop on the answer to this one. If listeners have not already seen the sting for whatever reason. Would you recommend that they pause the podcast, go out, watch the movie, and come back? What I'd suggest to them is if you're going to watch the movie, sit down and give it time and space. It's not something that you just quickly look at and come out the other end. I think you want to give it a bit of time and watch it because there's so much in it. Uh, and, and yeah, I'd recommend anyone to go and see this. I think, as I said before, a fantastic movie, but you need to give it time. You need to be settled. Make sure you're in the right frame of mind because <laughs> <laughs> you get, get really something out of this. There's a real buzz in this movie. There is indeed. And Andrew? Yeah, absolutely. All right, then. Join us on the other side of the Spoiler Zone. Thank you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> so, Dad, what is the sting about for you? For me, yeah. Um, I suppose it's 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 an intelligent way of getting uh, revenge on someone <laughs> <laughs> without having to stick a knife in them, <laughs> or blow the head off. To me, it 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 shows how through restraint and patience you can get what you want, and I think that's what's really classic about this. And it's done in such a very classic way. Um, that to me is, is the final point of this. It really makes you think, you know, that's, that's what I think. Because we talked about this a little bit before the spoiler zone, but it is a, relative to a lot of the films around it, when New Hollywood was coming in, and when you had this sort of like splurge of like artists and directors who are telling like the gritty underside of the American dream. Like if you look at say, other films, other crime films of the era, you had stuff like Chinatown, which we've covered, uh, The Godfather, which we will be covering, and even like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest or things like that, things that were like grittier and things that were more grounded and more sort of aggressive and more sort of like more angry in a way. No, like it's not entirely, I guess, without no, without no. I mean, I mean, there is, there is, but yeah, I, compared to those movies, certainly. And and quite as Dad pointed out, to the point where that is almost the point of it. Like, there's a moment where Redford's character Hooker is going to visit. Um, he's going to visit the the conman played by Newman, and he's saying, "Look." 
I really need to get one over on this guy. And he's like, why? And he's like, because I can't kill him. Uh, because I can't actually kill him. I'm no good at that. I'm no good at that. Um, and so it, it is, as you point out, it's about trying to get that one over, but in a way that is explicitly less violent. And I mean, it's, it's worth noting that, that Lonigan. I love the quote where they're talking about Lonigan as this big, like, gangster, as this mean figure through in the Chicago and New York underworlds. It's like, yeah, he's killed lots of people, maybe even eight. And it's like, I remember, like, this is, like, 1973, and it's like, that's probably Sonny's body count in The Godfather, right? Yeah, but I think if you, if you look at the way Shaw acts in this movie, is that um, he's like a kettle about the bile at, at any stage, and he comes across as menacing without being shown as being menacing, if you know what I mean. You yeah, don't seem violent. You don't seem being violent. You don't seem, you know, cutting people's heads off. But the way he talks, the way he acts, that intensity you get the impression yeah this guy in a dark night now could do all of that stuff yeah. i think that's that's the brilliant part of the movie it's the way the characters are developed that uh to the movie the way scenes are explained you know the storyline and everything they do it without sensationalizing anything they do it without having to fill it full of action just to keep you um your attention your attention down this it does it in a very subtle way and as you said earlier on you know this is a movie anyone can watch now I'm not too sure that the very young will get the get 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 all of this out, but certainly if you think about it, there's an awful lot in it, and to do it without that need for violence, to do it without that need for a shock for horror. Yeah. But they do get across the 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 impression that you know that the that, that Lanigan is a really vicious character. Yeah. He'll do anything f- to promote himself. Uh, you know. And you get the, the well. There's the moment when he's on the train. He's like, just uh, throw him out in the next tunnel, um, and that yeah, sort of thing. Or like the bit where he's like, drag him outside and put a slug in in his ear, um, and that sort of stuff. And you get a sense. Like, Come on, it's only a few minutes till we get into the station. <laughs> 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 Control your murderous rage. Um, but and there's also a bit of Robin Hood in this as well now, because all all of the gangsters are like merry men who come out because they feel a sense of of of, of something happening to one of theirs that they want to go out and. And, and make sure that it doesn't happen again or they want to get someone they want to get someone for it so you get the idea there's this merry band of um, crooks around the place and if you go back to Ireland maybe in the 70s maybe there was a very <laughs> merry band, band of, crooks. of crooks in Ireland at the time so maybe that's why it went down so well in Ireland um, the crook always does seem merry <laughs> well, I mean, like, people people uh, like um, uh, talking about kind of running numbers who no longer run numbers always talk about it in such a kind of uh, nostalgic yeah, sort of affectionate yeah. Oh, way yeah 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 we were all running numbers over there it was, it was a lot of fun everybody <laughs> knew the guy running the numbers yeah I run the numbers a little bit uh, sorry and nobody got hurt yeah, except yeah. for that one guy he got hurt pretty bad but after that <laughs> nobody got hurt I love I loved how they played uh, Doyle by kind of making him a, a uh, father figure oh. to 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 Kelly in a way in a in a really really uh, kind of like in in a, two kind of subtle um, uh, ways because they they when when they're giving the kind of profile of uh, yeah. Donegan they Lonigan, they 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 point out that he came from five points uh, five points but but he tells everybody. That he that he's from somewhere else, and he also says that like the way he came up is by doing over all of, all of his kind of uh, bosses. associates. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, so when I, when he's introduced to Hooker, 
um, in the car. He's like, where are you from? And Hooker's like, I'm from Five Points, but I, I plan on getting out of there. And that's immediately designed yeah. to make him click. It's a- and, and his whole proposition is like, um, come help me... Um, uh, do over uh, <laughs> somebody else so uh, yeah yeah because this is this guy that i've been working with and i i am sick of working for him i'm going to take over his whole operation I w- which is what lonigan <laughs> yeah. does why i wonder so this might like, have some sort of yeah. nostalgic attachment like, to you this for is some... like the sun <laughs> i never <laughs> um, had because yeah. i was too busy brutally murdering people apparently <laughs> you follow <laughs> okay no, but uh, yeah there, there's a there's a lot of that in there and i like how much of that detail is kept kind of relatively low-key again there's that sense that like of doing the work i love the sequence where they have all the crooks coming together at the table and they have little photos that they're passing around and it's like well what's it well for an irishman he doesn't drink he doesn't smoke and he doesn't chase after the dames it's like what are we going to do about him <laughs> um which i quite like as well but the idea of like the idea that doing crime uh so to speak is actual work that it's something that requires effort and skill and technique and practice which is something that i really admire in a film it's something that reminds me talk about this with the coen brothers the coen brothers do this rather well where they do like they portray even stuff like crime as something that you do with technique and craft you have that sequence where paul newman is playing with the cards on the train and every time he's turning up an ace except for the last time but it's that sort of stuff that's really great to just watch people do which i really really enjoy about the film and they're, 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 um, I think towards the end, Newman is talking about how um, crime became so sort of well run in Chicago that it, it was like a fixed uh, city. Yeah. And it's like, what's the point in doing it if you feel like a citizen? <laughs> like that it, that it was just a, a, a kind of an industry. That level of outlaw sort of thing. And again, yeah. and again there's, there's something romantic in that. So that's sort of like con artist fancy. We talked when we did Paper Moon about how like the con artist is like that quintessential American folk hero because he's literally the self-made man. He doesn't need anybody else except himself in order to make something of himself yeah except you get a sense of it being a whole kind of community yeah in here. this one it's like a john wick style <laughs> <Con> <laughs> like connected yeah uh the continental approach um in terms of that actually one of the things i really like and one of the things i wonder if the film is about the film is seems to be to a certain extent about like movie making and stuff like that no I, well one of the things i think in the in in, in in the film is how it presents the whole world of um i suppose con artists like they have their own labor exchange for you going you, you know like, oh, yeah there's a moment where you point out where they go in and they get a sheet it's like the worksheet for the day it's like can you pass me the registrar please exactly who and have then, we got and then as we go through this we're sort of uh, egging on the con artist now yeah. i'm sure if you met one of the con arts the day that rang you up on the phone and swindled you out of thousands of euros or pounds you wouldn't feel as if they're the good guys or whatever it is and so that's one of the things about the film it, it has this alternative world of uh, con artists that sort of mirrors the real world where it has this labor exchange it has these people who organize um, labor who, who employ people yeah. when, and when they finish up their job suit. yeah and then um, when they finish that job they move on to the next yeah. job you know it's almost as if it's a subculture that's going on in the background and so it becomes acceptable in the movie you know yeah. and you're thinking to yourself if you, were, you know, stand back a little bit after minutes, my god is that how the criminal work <laughs> works we don't have a chance yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's hilarious as well because like in, in the interview there's a guy coming in and saying oh and, and um, I do a very good English accent and 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 I only drink at the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> All of these sorts of things, like kind of, where they're they're kind of they're 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 
two like con men uh, talking to each other. And, and but it's he, a job interview. But it's, it's a, a job interview, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and so, they're asked, and you know, like when they're asked now, well, where, where, have you, where have you been before? What have you done? <laughs> what are your references? So, so there, you have references, and you got your CV, which is yeah. so it's all <laughs> it's also a mirror of the real world, you know. So, yeah. so maybe it's a place we should all be looking for jobs because it certainly pays off well if you believe the movie. Well, I mean, it, it's worth noting again. This is probably a product of the seventies in America. You point out in Ireland, like the, we had the sort of gang of criminals who are being very creative and running their own organization in Ireland. Again, this would have been a product of America in the 70s where you had the Nixon White House in the middle of all this that was doing all its sort of corrupt stuff. And so you had this sort of diminished faith in institutions. And I kind of, I imagine that's where a lot of the interest in like con artists came for, for stuff like Paper Moon and stuff. Yeah, it, the, um, I, I guess speaking of other kind of um, uh, uh, Redford movies, you had um was it all uh, all, all the presidents. president's men yeah you know, Redford was a big fan of this sort of like 70s counterculture he would have done stuff like the parallax view for example um the candidate was another one um what's the one it's the one the eagle something to do with the day of the condor that's the one right. it's the one where Redford goes out to lunch and comes back and finds his entire office brutally murdered uh because it was the 70s of course it was uh but yeah it, it's that sort of like thing where you get a sense that nobody trusted anybody at that moment in time and so you might as well trust a bunch of criminals i mean they may as well organize for themselves because society isn't going to look out for them and again it's set back in the 30s and while we've talked about how it's shot in the style of a 30s movie with the empty streets and stuff like that and the iris wipes as well and the title cards the title cards are amazing they're wonderful they're sort of they're like something from silent cinema Um, yeah but like while that's happening, you do get these little reminders at the edge of the frame. So like when the train is traveling through the night, you can see a, like a, a homeless person encampment on the side with a little flame, a little sort of fire by which everybody's the sitting. The start in a movie yeah. as well. You have like it, it, it almost starts with a shot of kind of a whole lot of people queuing up um, and they're kind of penniless. And then yeah. this man walks by with these nice shoes and then the, the, sort of tapping kind of, on his way up the stairs and then you see the the, the world of the movie yeah which it, is all it, stylish and people in tuxes exactly and stuff. whereas kind of uh, on on the level of, of of the street it's very different yeah like there's one point where, where redford runs through a homeless person encampment which would be much more reflective of what the 30s really were so again i, I think that's quite pointed because again in the 70s you would have had like the recession the oil crisis and stuff like that around the same time so you had that sort of anxiety bubbling there as well. So I can imagine that's why when you're making something like The Sting, it's like, well, an organized labor union criminal underworld is probably the best that we can hope for, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. No, well, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought it is something, it's another one of these sub things, plots in the back. If you look at these little things, you can see like how well organized they are. You know, they're able to get all the equipment they want. They're able to... Oh, they have they the exchange of the fence. Yeah, anything they want. There's, there's sort of, there's sort of this, this sort of almost like, a, you know, a buy and sell for con artists. You yeah. look it up and you ring this number or whatever it is or whatever it is. Or <laughs> do, do you want a fixed rate or percentage? Percentage, yeah. You know, <laughs> Who is it? Not <laughs> again. A fixed rate. <laughs> but yeah, like, and it, and it is though, I, I really like that sort of aspect of it, that almost sort of like Fantasia. And it is like you are getting one over, over the people who are in charge. Because Lonigan is the biggest game in town. The amount of money that he's moving, like when they and hold... Not even just in town. Yeah, he's, yeah. All, he's also up in New York as well. Yeah. But like the amount of money that he's running, the fact that Redford is, like Redford and Luther are doing a job that's basically keeping them afloat. And again, this is the thing with Luther where I love this, where Luther is like, well, this is my last con job. 
Guess I'm just gonna retire. Getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I sure hope that nothing bad <laughs> happens to me in the next couple of minutes of the movie. Um, interesting enough, do you know he's played by James Earl Jones' older brother? I saw that. I thought Doc Vader was about to come in the door on stage there. <laughs> I yeah, saw the name as well, yeah. Because it is Earl Jones as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, but it's, yeah, it's, um, but it, it's kind of, I, I admire that sort of level of plotting as well, where there's a sense that, like, Luther and Hooker have never encountered the amount of money that they get off the mark at the start of the film by coincidence, because they live in a completely different world. These gangsters, like, Lonigan operates on a completely different scale. And it's almost like, you know, when... he Like, when Hooker is going into that world, they literally have to remake him. They take him to, like, a barber and give him a manicure. And he pulls his hand back because he doesn't know what a manicure is. They have to part his hair to the point where they barely recognise him. He's wearing a tux. It is very much like getting one over on people who are who exist in a completely different higher strata than you do which is kind of as he pointed out it's the robin hood fantasy you're robbing from the rich now you're giving to yourself but you're robbing from the rich yeah and yeah and it's again going back to the 70s like at the time so the black economy well, it was rampant in Ireland as well, where, you know, like there was one price, if you wanted the receipt, there was another price, you just paid cash. <laughs> so Fixed I suppose, price. Um, I suppose that, 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 that was another reason probably why it went down so well in that it sort of mirrored what was actually happening in life, you know, like, and that there was a redistribution of wealth, but uh, behind the scenes. You know, like, and I suppose that's what this film was, was partially about, it was to get back at, 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 at Lonigan for what he did. But there's also this redistribution of wealth there as yeah. well, because they got half a million. I don't know how much that's worth in today's money, but it's been worth. But in 1939, that would be a lot of money. Yeah, right? and there'd be a lot of very happy unemployed conmen out there now, probably go off for a holiday to um, Florida, whatever it is on. <laughs> but they got out of that. So I suppose there's that sort of element to it as well. That that, that it isn't just a con. It's it's the idea now that they're not only going to get their own back in them, but they're going to take money and their lives probably going to get better for it. You know, like, yeah. although as Redford says at the end, I don't want my cut. I'd, I'd spend it anyway. You know, like, mm. so he was just happy to, to just got back on, on again for what happened, you know, and to have had the one over and one to have over. taken, taken yeah. away. half. So it was, the, it was the, the, the spirit of adventure. And that's, that's probably going back to Robin Hood, you know, like, cause he gave the money to the, to the poor or whatever it is, but he was in it for the, the, the higher thing. It's the thrill. So, so that makes Robin Hood and uh, Redford maybe one in the same, <laughs> one in the same character. Again, that, that's the sort of like American folk hero. Because again, like if you look at the 70s, Redford was like the embodiment of like American cinema and American. Because so, you had this sort of like the boyish good looks. You had him starring in all these movies sort of back to back, which kind of tapped into the social anxiety. I can totally believe like Redford as the personification of like an American Robin Hood at a time when everybody was losing faith in, in sort of governance and when everybody was sort of like stretching and trying to pay the bills and trying to find a way to pay for petrol, queuing yeah. up at the pumps for that. You, 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 can kind of, um, you can kind of understand all of that sort of grifting and, and the uh, black economy if like inflation is running off in 10 or like 15%. Like people... Um, like this uh, tendency for people to kind of um, rip each other off. Yeah. Because like, how else are we going to get by? Possibly survive. Yeah. But it's okay because Lonigan is very clearly established as such an unpleasant man that you feel no guilt about like, about stealing his money. And there's a moment, it, it's, there's, it, it, there's the absolutely brilliant moment on the train where after Redford, sorry, after Newman has taken him, where he's like, 
you know, where he's sitting there with his goon, and there's the great shot of the goon reacting when when, when Newman oh, turns over the four jacks, and you can tell the goon is like, "Well, I'm getting thrown out in the next tunnel, possibly." But there's the moment where like they're in the train carriage, and he's like, "Look, boss, you don't have to take this. You can just fix this. You can just tell everybody." It's like, "What am I supposed to do? Tell them that he cheated better than I did?" Um, and I, that... I love this scene where he's he's on he's on a, a pudding green, yes, and he says like. Do you see that fellow over there? Um, he he's um, he's an associate of mine. I've known him since I was six years of age. If he ever found out that a grifter got one, one grifter got their way over me, I'd have to kill him and everyone he knows. <laughs> and <laughs> so you get a real sense of who of the Lonigan kind of person is. Who Lonigan. is. Yeah. Um, but I, I like when, the idea that that Lonigan's thing isn't that like he doesn't want to do that because it would you know because it's wrong. It's just it would be a real massive hassle. Yeah, it would yeah. be a buzzkill. You don't want me to have to kill everyone, do you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do you follow me? <laughs> have you seen this? Or yeah, <laughs> you know how much work it is, right? Um, but again, and then what do we think of Shaw's Irish accent? Actually, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one bit of the movie that makes me cringe when I hear it. <laughs> I'd be better off. He'd be better off if he just did his own accent than that. Yeah. It, it doesn't come out too strongly. In most of the film, but when it does come out, it's terrible. It's uh, it takes from it. Anyway, that's just I, I, I certainly didn't think it was genuine, but I, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it all the same. I, I, it, it reminded me as well of his character in, uh, in Jaws, where he's just doing an accent because. Yeah, he's like old oh, Spanish lady. <laughs> <laughs> but think with thing with uh, Shaw actually, which is interesting. Shaw actually got the role while he was in Ireland. Which may explain sort of, I think, you know, I don't know whether the producer sent somebody over to Ireland looking Certainly for... Certainly not the worst Irish yeah, accent looking, on screen. Looking for an Irish accent and it was just like, Shaw was like, I'll do it, I'm in Ireland. Um, but, but it's a funny thing. I don't know, is it because we're Irish? But I, I find um, people who think they can do it can't do it. Like even over in England, where we live so close to them, you'd expect that they'd kind of have, have a good sense a good ear for it. A good ear for it. And they, uh, a person will stop you and say, I've got a really good Irish accent. Really? And then do it. And it's like, no, it's, it's terrible. And why do you think I would enjoy that? <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. The, 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 um, it's certainly not the worst. There's no, there's no Tom Cruise. In, in uh, far and away. Be gosh and be In terms of Shaw as well, it's worth noting that apparently Shaw really ticked off the studio. Because um, apparently they had difficulty finding somebody who wanted to play third, fil- third fiddle to Newman and Redford, understandably, in a film like this. And apparently Shaw said he'd do it, but he'd do it for, A, a phenomenal amount of money. I think he got paid half a million dollars. Which, you know, while not half, ironically enough, from the set, we just <laughs> get it. <laughs> we just, he shouldn't have gambled it at the climax of the film himself. But, uh, which, you know, while it, it wasn't as much in 1972 as it would have been in 1939. The they're like, all right, take away those lights and cameras. Let's get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> wrap up, wrap up, wrap up. Um, but he demanded that much money. And he demanded third billing ahead of the title as well. Which apparently upset them no end. There's some argument that... Why, darling? Well, kind it, of the, 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 it, it, seem, it, seem, it seems like it's maybe petty of, 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 of Shaw to ask for that. But why does the studio care? It's like, oh no, he's going, going to credit be a... him before the title of the movie. <laughs> We're like going to have it's... to print all these new posters. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it was seen well, just in general, as being sort of um, unconsiderate or not not playing the game, so to speak. 
Uh, to the point where it's been argued that, like, he may have cost himself a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Because the film got ten nominations, it won seven of them. Robert Redford's only acting nomination is for this film. Really? Uh, yeah, which is outstanding, amazing. I suppose he, he, he's, he's not really known as, like, one of the incredible yeah. actors of his generation. Like, he's sure, not like Dustin very, Hoffman, for yeah. example, or Al Pacino. He's, he's very kind of, like, solid and has been in a lot of good movies. But you don't come away from it. Like, like um, he... Um, I can't imagine Raging Bull starring Robert Redford, to pick no, an example. No. Or, um, you know, sort of, yeah. Or Lincoln starring Robert Redford. Or... Gone with the Mohican, maybe Gone with the Mohican star, Robert Redford. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> but probably less immersive. I can't imagine Robert... Gone with the Mohicans. A good point. Um, sorry. The last, <laughs> the last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Apologies. Um, well, that was a remake that never was. That never so quite materialized. It was a combination of Gone with the Wind and Last of the Mohicans. Do you know that there was actually a, um, a sequel to this thing? Was it? Yes. Dad, you may not want to hear this because apparently it was awful. Uh, but it was released in 1983 with none of the talent involved. I think it stars, is it Jackie Coogan? It's or Jackie Cooper? And one of those two. Um, not Jackie Coogan. Jackie Coogan was Uncle Fester. <laughs> yeah. and, and the kid the from the kid. kid. From, yeah. But yeah, it, it basically it was released in 1983. Sunk at the box office. Hated by critics. There's a reason that no, The Sting 2. This, oh, not even like the second yeah, thing, they, or no, they could the, have called it something like um, they. What could they have called it? They, they the big con. Yeah, they could have called it the big con. The setup. Um, yeah, they they are they, not the sting. <laughs> the, the wire. Which is which called it that? Which is a, a scam that apparently still exists today. Which is interesting because you have to wonder how or they could have called it after any number of scam scams. How long do how long does it take to get those things into Western Union to read those announcements? I wonder. The because um, it's like yeah, we've got three minutes and however long it takes you to queue at the uh, at the at the betting stand uh, before we actually have to publish the results. In, in in incredible as well the way the way the way they they have it set up. It's um, kind of like. So um, you're going to go in there and put money on a horse. And it's like, I didn't get to put money on the horse this time because there was someone else in the queue. <laughs> that it's never like, happens. Yeah, it's like, make sure there's no one in the queue the next time. How would I do that? Yeah, <laughs> um, on, yeah that he trusts it enough that he walks in with a suitcase. It's full of $500,000. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, um, yeah, this... this um, He's certain at that time that the, uh, at that point that the horse is going to come true, uh, but uh, was it that he was asked to place? No, no, no. The the con. I think he. I we'd have to go back and play the recording, but it's fairly <laughs> certain that the idea was that he was told. Well, he was told twice. Um, uh, went on to win. Yeah, I thought the 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 thing was that like all the discussion was about um him 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 betting on a horse, and that um he just did not catch. That it, that it was to place but. although it, it does seem kind of irrelevant though because like if you're going to do the again this is the spoiler zone so we can talk about the film with all the twists revealed if you're going to do the FBI raid on the betting house anyway it doesn't matter whether he bets on the horse that wins or not I think that makes it better though what that he bet on the horse that doesn't win no, he, he, he bet on the horse to win, but he was supposed to bet on it to place. Like, and it doesn't they, matter they, anyway. It's like his his whole kind of, um, his whole sense of what's happening is slowly kind of... Eroding. Um, yeah, and he it's just, 
kind of getting away from him and just um, circumstances one after the other are, 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 are destroying this kind of money that he had already kind of made in his head, I guess. I mean, well, that's the beauty of the con is that like, and again, this is the thing where when they're first setting out to do it, it's the idea that like the beauty of the con is the con that he doesn't even realize is a con even after it's played because obviously he just killed them. Yeah, but I think that if you think take out take out the FBI bit altogether. Okay. Okay, and if you didn't have that, then putting the money on uh, to win would have lost them the money, so the con could have ended there, right? Yeah. Uh, so that so that was it. But I think that's just the subtlety of the movie is it just doesn't leave it hanging there. It actually puts in. A double sort of protection in that you have the FBI bit then coming in then I think that's that's another part of that's so likable about the movie there's 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 a lot of this little bits in it that's so clever that even if they said on that particular case if the FBI bit didn't happen he would still lost the money he would totally lost it you know well he probably would have murdered would several of the people seven, involved but, but 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 you know like it, it would have it would have been for us viewing it yeah that, that they'd been conned Right. Yeah. Um, but and that's what I think is nice about this movie is there's a lot of these little double takes that that sort of double bolts what's happening in there. And I said that's what's so good about this movie, you know, because it it's like everything that makes the the con messier for Lonigan makes the con itself cleaner. Yeah. Um. So like all of these kind of um elements that are that are that are, that are inserted into it. Um, serve to confuse him or catch yeah, him more off guard. Exactly. That sort of I mean, and be, be, because you don't want a situation where Lonigan is sitting around there arguing with them or having the time yeah. to think about it. Because that—that's the idea with cons. Again, not that I know anything about con artistry, but apparently the thing with cons and it's like magic, it's misdirection. But the idea is that you keep this person thinking about things that they're not meant to be thinking about, so they can't come back and question like what it is that you're actually doing. You add all these elements. Again, it's like storytelling. You add all these elements that seem to be incongruous or distracting that have nothing to do with the story that you're telling. So you can you pull the rug out and reveal. Kind of yeah, but build you, up the yeah. legitimacy of it. Yeah. But if you think about this, so like uh, a lot of people want to hear what they want to hear, and I think if you take that bit about where he's been told to place the money to win all the time, right? Yeah. So in your mind, when you hear the horse, time, that's all you hear. You don't hear the bit before it's to, to win or the place. Yeah. And that's another subtlety of the movie is that, and that's how Khan works as well in that people think they hear. Yeah. You convince people that they've heard something that they haven't heard. Mm. You know, like, yeah. I think that's another subtlety in there that's, that's very good. Uh, can I ask actually, when you saw it the first time, did the FBI twist surprise you? Did it catch you off guard? Yeah, it completely. Like I believe that that Hooker was going to 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 wrap out and rat betray and on it there. And that was the, like, that's when watching it the first time, the place bit was important because I thought that was the end of it. Uh-huh. Then they come in and I think, oh God, they've been caught. And then, then the twist happens, you know, like, so that was really, like, like, that was at the very end of the film. So you're, think now within 10 minutes, you're leaving the cinema at that stage and you're still trying to figure out what had happened. I think that was one of the good things about the thing was as you left the movie, you weren't saying, as I said before, that's a great movie. Now we'll go to see James Bond next week. You left him and said, hold on a minute now, that was really good, really clever at the end, you know. Uh, and, and I know when I went to see it, I hadn't heard, no one had told me about what happened in the end. All it was, it was a good, it was a good movie. So, you know, it was very tight at that time then. I don't, 
certainly that wouldn't happen now. You'd yeah. always find out what's going on. But I thought that again, that's why I think it's such a good movie. Um, and and if you're watching it for the first time, certainly don't read up about it. Just go in and watch it. Yeah. 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 I mean, that that's the thing. It's very hard to do these days, where you live in a constant trickle of like trailers, advertisements. If you're on social media, you can't avoid it. If you're on the internet, it's very hard to avoid spoilers. If about you're Darren. If you're Darren, you just sort of absorb these things passively through the atmosphere. But yeah, I mean, like you just heard about this and gone to see it, and so had no expectations, and it was just. You just went with it. Well, you knew because the actors that were in it. That this that was you could be, trust you it. You could yeah. trust that it was going to be a, a good movie. You weren't going to fall asleep in the middle of it. But what, as I said, what, what, what really then made this movie was it wasn't dependent on Redford. It wasn't dependent. I know that their acting was very good in it. The, the movie came alive itself. It became its, its own beast, if you want to put yeah. it like that. And you were very interested in it. And so much so that Redford sort of became part of the movie. You know, uh, Newman became part of the movie. Shaw became part of the movie. It was all very, very believable. If you know what I mean. Yeah. In, in it, not in a sense that it was reality, but, but investing in it. Investing in it. it, it was, yeah. You could invest in it that this this is a really good storytelling telling going on here, and it was and it wasn't just dependent on the actors. So the actors brought you in to see it, but it was actually the storyline, and and their parts in the storyline, how well they pulled it off, made the film. Like the way it kept you guessing for so long, kind of, and 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 thinking about what was going on that you weren't seeing. So that, like all of the, um, the well, sense I mean, the, that the, Paul the, Newman was figuring out the picture uh, of things the that were being yeah. hidden from him. Yeah, and the idea that even stuff is hidden from the audience. So, for example, the the glove that you see on the car wheel that's watching Redford, and you've no idea whether that's an assassin out to kill him. Or what's going on. You have the glove getting the guns. You have the bit where the guy's hunting Redford. Who's escaped into the sewer. And he turns around and he faces the camera. And he's like oh it's it's you. And then gets shot. And you have all these little things adding up. And the audience has to try and figure out what's going on. And how they fit together. Even as you're watching. Again this is the meta game. It's like you're watching Redford and Newman put together. This sort of elaborate con. That they're playing on Lonigan. At the same time as you are being party to the film playing this sort of little con with you where you have no idea exactly what's going on and and you, like you get a sense that that Newman is finding out things that have been like like, like where 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 he's at the meeting and he's asking kind of like say has, has anyone um been throwing around any bad money uh cut to reaction shot of Redford looking guilty because you know that Redford has been throwing around kind of yeah. money and the, the the way kind of um um, uh, Newman at times kind of uh, gives a look to some of the kind of older uh, the veterans like veterans. JJ or whatever. yeah yeah like uh, uh, Walston when he's yeah. kind of looking at him kind of thinking um, like you get a sense that that like and it's telling you as an audience that they have some sense that Redford is going to mess up everything for everybody yeah. so you're wondering like is it so that the 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 moment when Newman takes out his gun and and shoots, shoots Redford, Redford as he's being escorted away, you have the sense watching it that yeah that uh, Redford was kind of like prepared for this and thought that he was going to be done over, um, or that uh, Redford in some sense was going to mess this up. Um, so it's it's very kind of. Um, you you believe it as a moment in the movie when it's worth noting how much of that is nested as well because like even Lonigan who is the mark in this thing he thinks he's operating a scam 
Like he thinks he's the scam artist in this story that's being told. He's party of this The Wire. Like the idea is The Wire is a trick that he thinks he's pulling when in fact it's a trick that's being pulled on him. And you have this whole thing where again, nobody knows anything, uh, but somehow it all fits together and it turns out more people knew more than they let on. It's a, a very interesting dynamic, particularly when dealing with an audience, I think. Sorry. It's just thinking there like, uh, it's, it's a bit of con, right? But there's more than one con in it. And yeah. I have you ever taught him how many cons are actually in it? How many misdirections are in that film? Yeah. Um, I haven't counted them, but there's quite a few of them. And most of them probably overlap or intersect and sort of like shadow one another. And like if you were trying to figure out who knew what when, it would be quite difficult. But that's the that's the joy of it, I but think. But the other thing too as well is that you're looking at well, who's being conned on, on the film itself. But there's also a con going on with the audience. Yeah. And there's been a, there was a number of cons in the film with the audience where the audience were misdirected and I suppose that's that's something maybe it's, it's worthwhile looking at is how many cons are actually in yeah. the movie <laughs> it's, it's an incredible thing it's, it seems like really risky as well Re- revealing to someone that you're that you're going to con that you are a con man and yeah. that you have cheated them and that yeah um like, like like you've told them what you do and then and then you're asking them to kind of come in on this scheme with you yeah I am completely untrustworthy. Trust yeah. me and run this and untrustworthy like, scheme with um, me. Yeah, and he, he, he comes in and, 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 and says, oh, he, he beat you at cards because he's a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> but you can trust me. I'm just his right-hand man. Yeah. And I just know all about his cheating. But, I mean, again, I'm going to cheat him. <laughs> yeah, uh, we can cheat him together. Uh, yeah. I'm a completely trustworthy person. This is the thing where, and again, I think this is maybe reflective of like 70s anxieties where it's like everything seems to be a trick. Everything's a lie. Everything's a deception. You can trust no one. You have that sort of like Watergate paranoia, that Vietnam paranoia, that sort of idea that like nothing that you believe or have faith in has any value. Everybody is just scheming and lying and caught up in this and nothing actually has any real value. Nothing is actually true in the sense that, like, again, in the 70s in America, you had all the, the paranoia around, say, the Kennedy assassination. Everybody, nobody believing the official version of events, that sort of stuff. You had stuff like, again, if the President of the United States is the crook, who can you trust? Um, and you have this sort of bleeding through pop culture in a number of ways. And it's kind of interesting that it's... Or the Taoiseach. <laughs> or if the, imagine if the Taoiseach of Ireland turned out to be a crook. What are the odds of that? That would never happen. Uh, but yeah, you have that sort of like lack of faith thing in there. And then, so everything is lies and everything is deception. And ironically, the only people you end up trusting are the people who have admitted to you that they're betraying or deceiving you and or other people. It is, it's it's a wonderfully kind of bendy, reflexive sort of like box, basically, that's just like infinite, it's recursive to a certain degree. And I wonder like, when you talk about this as a con being run on the audience, like the sting... To me, and I wonder if this is why it did so well at the Oscars. It seems to be a movie about, if not movie making, storytelling at the very least. In that every con game is a story. You construct a narrative. You tell Lonigan a story and he buys it and he's the audience for it. You're pitching it to him. You bring him in. It's like what you, you see said. You him thinking about it as well. Yeah. When he's sitting there kind of at the stool um, in this um, uh, uh, bar, this setup. Yeah. Um, you see him kind of looking around and kind of judging things and he is seriously kind of like contemplating. What's you see, real and what's yeah, not. You see him thinking kind of like, what's actually going on? Yeah. 
Um, and, and the idea then is that you provide him with more information before he has time to think about it. Which yeah. is what, what a film with a twist does. Like if a film has a twist, all it does is it keeps giving you more information and hopes that you don't figure out what that is before you get to the end or before it gets to the end. And I mean, again, like you can point to any number of similarities. Like they literally build sets. Like they build... You, uh, you don't want a twist that comes out of nowhere. Yeah. You want to be like, oh... It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Everything fits together. And it does. And that's a great thing about this movie. Because like you look at the FBI stuff. All the FBI stuff happens with Charles Durning as a witness to it. So like he's the audience for that con, right? So like, for example, that's why when he's dealing with Polk on the phone, he's like, okay, look, I'll tell you I'm going to be there at this time. Because he's playing for the character of Durning. They don't need to do that except to impress to Durning that this is what's actually happening. So you have this idea of like performing for an audience. Lonigan is the audience for most of the movie. Um, and again, this is the one where you take him into the room and it looks real, but it's populated by people who are actors. Like the, the scene where like one guy's like, oh, I bring my own costuming, thank you very much. Or putting on his beard when he's sitting yeah. down with, with Redford and stuff like that. Or like every time that anybody comes in, it's like, uh, just go straight to uh, costuming or put some makeup on that nose. You know, that sort of stuff. And it, it's very much like even the bit where they're, Every time Lonigan comes through that little alleyway, you have the guy upstairs in the room with the little bell and the buzzer, which is basically a first positions thing. It's like theatre or like, uh, like a, a movie. It's like the position when you start the scene. It's like everybody in place, okay, don't break character. Nobody laugh, no matter how funny this is. Yeah. And it, it feels very much like... Don't hit your marks. That's it, exactly. Like, deliver your lines as you're meant to. It feels very much... And again, even stuff like they do location work, at one point, like when they have to go to the office, the Western, yeah. which is amazing, that Western Union thing. I feel bad for the guy whose office is half painted. Um, but again, it's, it's wonderfully innovative. It's very clever. It's like it's a really clever sort of think on your feet sort of thing. And this yeah. is the thing where it's like we talk a little bit about this with con movies where the joy of the con movies just it's not just the con itself. It's watching smart people do what they do. Like con movies in many ways are like sort of workplace dramas in that you're watching somebody who's doing their job and doing it very well. Like there's the great shot before the night of the con where Paul Newman is sitting up in bed with a cigarette in his mouth and it, the woman sleeping next to him says, look, go to sleep. You've done what you can. There's nothing you can do that will change any of how this is going, but he's still turning it over in his head. But even stuff like having to improvise because many, many con movies will, many con man movies will have those beats where they planned everything perfectly but something comes up. Something comes up that they didn't expect or didn't plan for and they have to improvise around. In this movie, it's the, well, I want to meet your man at Western Union. And it's like, well, do we have a Western Union set yet? Let's mm. go and get one. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Let's, let's actually do location work for this one. Let's go and shoot it out in a Western Union office. And it's kind of, it's really clever and playful and innovative. I really, really like that aspect of it. It's kind of, it has a, an energy to it. Because it's not... We, like we talked a bit about how it's not like a hyper violent film it's not like a very aggressive film it's very to a certain extent if you were looking at it it's very slow and methodical in its storytelling but it's always something interesting happening which i really like about it like you're always engaged with it the one one thing that didn't um uh maybe work for me um but it was it was a um a real kind of a, a a twist it was a real uh wtf oh oh yeah 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 the assassin yeah. 
I think Mr. Mooney, the two, might have had a similar reaction. Had a, had a, had a similar reaction to it. All right, when when we see Loretta um, uh, uh, coming, this woman who is like who works at this again, like she works she works at a sort of diner, an all night diner, right? And Robert Redford has kind of struck up this flirtation with her over the course of the film. She at one stage helps him escape from another assassin. Um, but you have this sort of like, and one night he gets so lonely and he goes up to her bedroom and he knocks on the door and he gives her those eyes and they have a connection. He falls asleep. She's gone the next morning. He's worried that she's stolen something, but all his money's there. And then later on in the movie, he sees her down an alleyway that again is completely abandoned. And like they're having this moment where it looks like they're going to meet up. It looks like they're going to have a moment. Behind him, a guy emerges with a gun and a silencer. She sees the guy with the silencer. So you're like, oh, she's going to kind of... Shout or tell him that, like, tell Hooker that this is what's going to happen. And then... Then she gets shot in the head. <laughs> yeah, in perhaps the most graphic moment of violence in the film. Yeah. And even then, it, it's... But the, the, thing, the thing that kind of... Um... Um, uh, spoils that kind of um, that moment in the movie a little bit for me was that it turns out that um, that these kind of uh, grifters and and con men have like okay so yeah so um, we we've got somebody who 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 can play cards and this guy is gonna is gonna round up all all these thirty guys to work for us and and we have. Uh, this guy who's coming in from Kansas City. What does this guy do? He kills people. <laughs> um, okay. Um, it, it kind of uh, almost sort of uh, takes away. It does a little bit from the yeah. intricacy of the con that they're running. Because it's like, you feel like there's a moment where Hooker's like, like... If um, they wanted to get Lanigan. Yeah, because Hooker's like... They Hooker's could get like, somebody who kills yes. the best hitman <laughs> In, like, the United <laughs> States, pretty much. But, yeah, because you feel like there's a moment where Hooker says to, like, Newman, it's like, uh, the only alternative is to kill him, and I'm not good enough at that. And you wait for Newman to I say... I know a guy. Yeah, well, <laughs> we actually have somebody on staff for just these contingencies, it turns out. But, I mean, it's, it's not only that, it's the fact that, like, while all this was happening, apparently the gangsters put... Well, the gangsters put Lorraine... and Put your woman in a position where she was working at a diner... On the off chance that Redford might just oh, happen to L- be... Loretta put herself in that position. She's very much kind of, um, I will tell you the, the terms and you better not get anyone else to do this job because I do it very much in my own way. And I'm I will shoot them in the job at a cafe, hoping that he... Drop in, for, <laughs> drop drop in for a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and over the course of several nights, we'll grow progressively closer. I won't kill him in the cafe. Nor will I kill him when I'm alone in, fact, in the room with him. I will protect him <laughs> in the cafe. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will stop other people from killing. Him. Also, if he he will, the plan is that he will feel an intense physical and emotional connection to me. I will kill people who try to kill him. Yeah, where the night before he's going to do this big job, which I don't know what it is because it's purely hypothetical. But the night before he does that, he'll come up to my apartment and we'll sleep together, and I won't kill him then. No, yeah. no, no. Because people will have seen him go in. Well, I mean, to I'm be sure fair, if she explained to the old woman, do you know that man who came in last night? It's not what you think. It, it, uh, <laughs> like uh, because because we're not married. What was actually happening was I was killing him. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, 
I mean, well, the, that's not. That, that, that's, that's much more. That's yeah. I mean, the only alternative is something like uh, Anne Hatun, which we saw, where uh, as a result she embarks oh, yeah. on a murderous crime spree through the entire building to eliminate witnesses. Yeah, that 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 one twist maybe doesn't quite work for me. If we're being no, entirely honest, does it? I think one of the big issues there is like she's waking up at two a.m. in the morning. <laughs> and she's going there first thing in the morning. When was she going to find Don? Don Down Hooker. It just didn't sound right, and like. It wasn't if there was someone else in there when she was there. She was there on her own, you know. So she had to stay there until two o'clock in the morning. So again, that that bit just didn't didn't work out, you know. She's like, also very charming and witty for her. For her <laughs> like, sociopath, yeah. a very high functioning, like, very look because the the like so many of the lines in this movie are great. Yeah, like where where it's a very good script. She said, "I'm I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get out of town." Um, um, uh, one one of these days again in a train and it's like wh- where are you going to go to and it, it says it depends what train I get on yeah which is lovely <laughs> as well there's a, there's a whole bunch of like really great lines from there's, from there's where he he's he sent there um um he's he's sorry he sent there he sent there to learn uh from from um from Gondor. Because Lu- Luther has kind of put him on to him. Yeah. And and he says, I, 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 what, what am I going to uh, learn from you? I already know how to drink. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I actually quite like that aspect of Newman's character where there's an element of almost pathos to him in the comedy. Because it's very clear that he does drink too much. Like even when he's doing the little trick with the aces, he his hands shake and the cards go absolutely everywhere. And there is this sense that maybe he's not as reliable as he seems to be. Now, of course, it turns out he can organise a hell of a good con. Uh, yeah. But there is that sort of interesting tension there where he's introduced as a drunk and a layabout. Yeah. He has that great hangover cure, like putting his head into... Um, a big into block ice. of ice. I, I, yeah, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before that I do like kind of, you know, uh, the cold. <laughs> as a hangover cure as a hangover cure maybe an ice cream yeah but <laughs> this I, is just I must that try idea. that one the, the whole lot of take ice take a giant there. block of yeah. ice smash it up in the freezer and bury your head in it as well I suppose so, something that we talk about a lot is food waste there's a lot of booze waste in this there's like a bottle of champagne thrown in the bin <laughs> thrown in the trash half, 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 half a, a bottle, bottle of gin, gin flushed down like, the no! it's the moment where um, the moment where oh, where delicious garden <laughs> Moment where Lonigan grabs the like, because he's like, well, a mark can't tell if you've watered down your gin. Moment where Lonigan grabs the gin from from sort of Newman's character, and you're wondering like, is he going to? Will he end up pouring himself a glass? Go, hey, wait a minute! I'm Irish enough to recognise that this isn't gin. Um, yeah, but he's Irish, and he doesn't. Irish he doesn't drink gin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of uh, this sort of movie, it's also worth noting the soundtrack. Which uh, is amazing, isn't it? The soundtrack it? is absolutely brilliant. It really ties it into the 1930s. Uh, and it also ties into the actions in the movie itself. It's, it's very well thought of. It really sets the, the, the pace and it sets the time of the movie. Uh, I think it's absolutely fantastic. The soundtrack is absolutely fantastic. It was written by Scott Joplin, for example. Um, the Entertainer is the track. That's the, yes. one that, the one that everybody knows from the film. Um, and in fact, it's a pro- you're right, it does, it sets the scene entirely because, again, it's the entertainer, the idea that what they're doing is putting on a show. Interestingly enough, Joplin actually wrote most of the music in the 1910s or 1900s. Um, and it was actually sort of, it predates the, the film setting. But they decided that the music sounded so good anyway over the action. And because it sounded like a silent film soundtrack, 
But it also, I think the other thing it, it makes it again, you said earlier on that this film is a film for everybody. I think the music for it also does that. The music doesn't, isn't threatening music. It's light music, but at the same time, it fills in very well what's going on on the screen. So I think that this, that gives it the sort of the background, the theme, the sort of the way the, the movie is playing out. It is an intelligent movie. It isn't there to shock, horror, whatever it is. And it's also, it's a single piano as opposed to an orchestra as well. So it, it is very much, it feels very it, jaunty almost in a way, playful, if, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and I kind of, I really like that. It, the Entertainer, famously off the back of this, the release of this movie, two weeks after the Oscars, it hit number three in the charts, which was more than, you know, 50 years after the artist responsible died. Which is, I was going to say, it was a very happy day for 96-year-old <laughs> Scott, <laughs> Scott Joplin. <laughs> but at, at the Grammys, uh, Marvin, <laughs> it's like, finally, 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 my moment's come, baby. Uh, but at the Grammys, Marvin Hamish, who's the guy who actually arranged the, the arrangements of the soundtrack that was used on the film. Um, he called Joplin the real new artist of 1974, um, which is great. It's kind of always reassuring when a guy who dies in 1917 is the most vital new artist of a given year. But I think it, it's right. It's something that like, and it's interesting how, and again, I think maybe the Simpsons have done it, but it's like when I see an old movie or a black and white movie or some sort of thing, the music I hear in my head is the entertainer. Yes, they used it for when, um, when Homer Scratch goes uh, to, New uh, York. to New York. It's like he's recounting um, the, the terrible time he went to New York and he was like chased by... By uh, an Irishman. By, <laughs> no, wasn't he chased by a pimp? Um, yes, yes, yeah, he was. Yeah, and, and the entertainer is playing. Thing in the uh, background. Yeah. But it's one of those things where... It, when you hear that music, I immediately think like old time, which is, is remarkable. And I wonder how much of that is down to its use in the film, because Joplin apparently beforehand wasn't seen as a major composer. Um, in fact, this was like his breakthrough. As you pointed out, 50 years dead, this is his breakthrough. <laughs> um, but it's like, because this was, this was kind of a big moment. And this is the level of impact that The Sting had. Jill at The Sting is adjusted for inflation, the 20th most successful movie of all time. At the American box office. Wow. Very good. Yes. Again, like, so it's it's a movie that had a tremendous, like, impact. It's a huge movie. I think only The Lion King. The Lion King is at number 19, to give you a sense of comparison. This is a movie that's earning, like, sort of, you know, like, Fast and Furious style, that earned Fast and Furious style money before earning Fast and Furious style money was deemed to be something that was possible. It's absolutely incredible. All right, so is there anything else that we want to talk about with the film? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything that sort of stands out to us? I mean, you spoke a bit about how uh, Redford maybe never really um, is the the sort of actor that we think of as one of the best of, of his generation yeah. or anything. But Newman, like, I always love Newman. Yeah. Like, throughout his whole career. Yeah. Like, even up to stuff like Road to Perdition. Road he's, Perdition's amazing. He's just an, he, he's an incredible presence, a great charisma, a fantastic man yeah. as well, beyond kind the, of the his, hole in the wall his, gang, his, the philanthropy. Uh, like, Newman's done, yeah, a tremendous amount. Absolutely. And I mean, and Newman is like, he's an acting legend. There was a time, a 10 year period of his career, I believe it may have included this stretch here, where in the space of 10 years, he made 18 movies, uh, which is just. Amazing. That's an incredible commitment to work. It's incredible as well watching watching him over his career play um, 
different kind of characters in the same story, like 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 in in the Hustler and then in the, the Color, the of, color money. of Money, yeah. yeah. Where he's like in the Hustler, he's the young up and comer, and in the Color of Money, he's the he's the older one, and you get that sort of like contrast between the two. And again, Newman, yeah. Well, I, and I don't want to be unfair to Redford because Redford is also great. Redford is like again, Redford is one of the embodiment. I don't think he would mind being um, disparaged uh, yeah yeah the the um uh being being uh, second fiddle um well i mean there's the um there's the the, the it's not like we're comparing we're dis- him to somebody who isn't tremendous yeah i mean like redford and newman have this relationship that we discussed where they sort of they love each other very much but they also tend to take the sort of the, the piss out of one another where you have like um Redford's asked if, like, Newman's contribution to American cinema has been trivialized, and his response is, Trivialized, said Redford when he was questioned. They haven't even scratched the surface of how trivial he is. <laughs> the reason he's so demanding of himself is because he has no talent. And apparently that was the big difference between Redford and Newman as actors. Redford apparently was very intuitive. Redford would show up to a scene, he wouldn't rehearse, he'd just do the scene however it felt natural to him in the moment. Whereas Newman was very sort of like old school. You rehearse the scene through and through. You hit your beats. You do your marks. Everything is perfect and you have it down to a tone. And it's kind of interesting to think of the two so close together. Like when their styles were so different from one another. You know, when they were sort of... Again, you point to like Newman as an infinitely adaptable character. I don't think Redford has that level of adaptability. I think... And again, that's not a knock on Redford. But like Redford... Redford seems to always play the same sort of character to a certain extent, even in when if he wants something that he can just sort of walk into and be natural. Yeah, I suppose there's only a certain amount of kind of range that he he that he gives. Yeah, but I mean, even in say like where he's playing against type, where he's like say Captain America: The Winter Soldier, where he's revealed to be the bad guy in that movie, he still spends ninety percent of the movie as Robert Redford. Yeah, that's it exactly. He still spends like every point up until the moment where he gets blown up being the nice guy. But even like things like Lions to Lambs or Truth, which is the one where he plays Dan Rather, or even like The Old Man and the Gun, which is is the recent one as well. They're all... It's a trailer for Lions to Lambs. Is it it bad? It's very earnest. Robert Redford has some very important thoughts. Yeah. Robert Redford has some very important <laughs> thoughts that he would like you to know about yeah, the war on terror. It's very kind of... Um, it's not good. He doesn't He doesn't think the war on terror is a good thing, Andrew. <laughs> you know, it does seem very earnest, but very kind of... Um, and very stagey you know, as well. the nose. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. There's like, uh, as I recall, like Meryl Streep is interviewing a congressman played by Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> and you can tell that Redford's like, I wrote that part for me, but then I aged. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the because the, there 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 is a very uh, the only reason I know about that movie is because there's a "Don't Stop or We'll Die" song, and it's like "Lions for Lambs, Let's Watch Lions for Lambs," and I was just like, "What? This song is really silly," and then I wanted to kind of go and find out what the movie was about anyway. But I mean, even when Redford does these older roles, like I'm thinking of Spy Game, which he did with Brad Pitt, which again, yeah. I think is somewhat underrated. But like, I, I, if you think about how Newman would have played that role, because Newman, if, if it was a Newman and Redford movie, Newman would have been the Redford role there. And it's like, no, Redford's just going to play the role as Redford. Thank you very much. I have a sense that Spy Games might have been one of these movies that, that, that you actually saw and... Um, or, or that 
that a lot of um, us may not have seen. Because I think one or two times in kind of um, teens, um, watching movies, weren't actually watching movies. But I do recall being kind of like driven home by my mom and she was asking kind of like, what movie did you see? And it's like, uh, spy games and then I went into like so much detail <laughs> like, and so, so it was Robert Redford and Brad Pitt and I had like made sure that I read the Wikipedia the, the summary review of it yeah. um, I, I, it, it was like kind of why uh, do you sound like Roger Ebert Andrew? no reason <laughs> yeah it was instead of saying like oh no I didn't watch the movie I went and drank cans in a peace park <laughs> but, um, um, but yeah um, yeah, we did, but um, I don't think you were drinking cats in the face. No, I normally went to see those movies. Uh, Dad, hello. Um, how are you, Dad? It's great having the you on the podcast. The statute of limitations is bad. <laughs> on this sort of thing. No, I actually, I actually did. I remember one time being really angry at everybody when they decided to leave a film halfway through. Because, like, we bought tickets to the film. You can go drinking later. I want to watch the movie. It may have been one of the Underworld movies, which was terrible, but still. Yeah, that was bad. Uh, but anyway, so is there anything else we want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything that you think we've missed? Anything that sort of like jumps out to you about the film that we haven't discussed already? No, as I said earlier on, I think it's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think you need to you go to, you know, discuss it in great, day, great detail to like it. Yeah. And there's enough in there in the movie to keep you entertained. And there's enough there to keep you thinking after you've seen it. Uh, Alright then, uh, so that about wraps it up. But before we go, Dad, we normally ask guests to recommend something that they're enjoying for listeners. So if listeners are looking for something that they could maybe try, whether it can be a book, a film, a TV show, a podcast, an activity, something that you're you're doing or consuming that brings you joy that you might want to share with the world. We ask you to sort of like to, to think about that and maybe recommend that for listeners. But we're going to give you time to think about that. So, Andrew, would you like to recommend something for listeners? Uh, yes, yeah. As, as we did a, a, a poll Newman uh, movie and I guess we mentioned some of his charity work back in the day when I used to do um, door to door sales one of the campaigns that we had would be fundraising and specifically Barrettstown uh, Barrettstown is fantastic I've been to Barrettstown it's one of the charities that Paul Newman set up in Ireland where what it does is it, it provides um, what's called therapeutic recreation They've done all these kind of studies about how um, the um, kind of outcomes for uh, for these children um, and they all have uh, serious illness um, can can the the, the the real good that it that it does them to, that it does them to be in the in in these camps it's incredible and it's completely uh, uh, free everything for um, for for these kids and for their families who've 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 been through so much. So I, I um have having having been there and seen some of the the, the work that they do I'd um I'd suggest to people if they if they wanted to 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 visit uh, barrettstown.org and uh, check some of that stuff out uh, for yourself. And dad yourself if there's anything you're enjoying a TV show or film that you've seen recently that you'd like to recommend to listeners to check out. Oh this was the last um, TV series I was looking at there was the, the the last ship it's over now I enjoyed that. Um, I was just listening there to, to, to what Andrew was saying uh, and you know I've just recently retired and I got myself a push back a decent one at last 
And I must say, I find that absolutely fantastic. So I would recommend anyone go out, get exercise, no matter how old you are. <laughs> and it's sing great. Raindrops Keep Falling on Your Head. And <laughs> no, 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 I can't do two things at the same time. <laughs> Let me just try cycling first, okay? So listen, Darren, thanks very much for inviting me on here tonight. I really enjoyed it. So. Not at all. And I, and I would uh, recommend myself, speaking of, we talked about like actors that we recognise who have been around forever, and Ray Walston in this movie, um, who looks exactly the same in 1972. Oh yeah, he's one of those guys like Gene Hackman, who was always old. He was like always frozen in that moment. Like, he's always looked that age, and like when he popped up in Star Trek in 92, 97, and 99, he also looked the same age as well. Uh, But like, uh, Burt Young, the actor Burt Young, who you may know from Rocky. Um, He was the brother in Rocky. But he's also, Paulie, Paulie, he was also in Chinatown as well. Um, he was in that as well. He popped up recently in Russia Doll on Net- Russian Doll on Netflix, which was one of those, and it's one of those rare moments. It's like a reverse 2016 moment where you go, ah, he's alive. And it was great. It was really, really good. Uh, so I'm watching Russian Doll on Netflix. Um, I recommend it. It's well worth a look, even outside of seeing Burt Young and going, ah. There's all of these, there's all of these people you will find out are alive in 2019. Rather than 2016, <laughs> where, you, where you find out that everyone has died. Um, all right, then. Take it easy. If people are looking for a bit more Andrew in their lives, where can they find you? Um, on Twitter, if, if, if you're on Twitter. A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A. But actually, uh, go go follow the 250. Yeah, which um, is at the 250, spelt using real letters. Uh, we're available on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Spotify... Uh, We are everywhere you want to be, baby. So you can download, subscribe there. If you do enjoy the podcast, please feel free to leave a positive review. Um, That sort of stuff really helps in sort of getting the world out there. And on Stitcher too. Yeah, Uh, and and please And thank you to all of our reviews that we've got. Yeah, Uh, we're we're, again, we're constantly flabbergasted that anybody listens to this at all. Anyway, take it easy, guys. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.